Welcome to Songcraft. I'm William Bell. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Born Under a Bad Sign, recorded by Albert King and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, William Bell. A legendary recording artist and songwriter for the Memphis-based Stax label, Bell first found success with his own recording of You Don't Miss Your Water, a song that would go on to be covered by Otis Redding, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Birds, and others. He would find chart success in the 60s and 70s with additional self-penned singles, such as the top 20 hits Everybody Loves a Winner, A Tribute to a King, Private Number, and Trying to Love 2, which hit number one on the R&B chart and number 10 on the pop chart. His top 10 R&B hit, I Forgot to Be Your Lover, would go on to be covered by Billy Idol as the top 10 pop hit, To Be a Lover, and was reinvented once again when Jaheem sampled it in Put That Woman First, a top 5 R&B hit and top 20 pop hit in 2004. In 2016, Bell returned to the reformed Stax label to release This Is Where I Live, an album of primarily original songs that featured William's own interpretation of Born Under a Bad Sign, which had become a blues standard that was named one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A partial list of artists who've recorded titles from the William Bell songbook includes Lou Rawls, Percy Sledge, Big Mama Thornton, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Rod Stewart, Etta James, Laverne Baker, Dusty Springfield, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, Melissa Etheridge, Robert Cray, and Sturgill Simpson. Additionally, his songs have been sampled by Ludacris, Kanye West, and others. Bell was inducted into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame and the Memphis Music Hall of Fame. He was honored with the R&B Pioneer Award by the Rhythm and Blues Foundation and the W.C. Handy Heritage Award from the Memphis Music Foundation. In 2016, the Americana Music Association honored him with its Lifetime Achievement Award. The following year, he earned his first Grammy Award for This Is Where I Live, which was named Americana Album of the Year. Happy 2018. Yeah, Happy New Year. And this is our 80th episode. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it. It went quick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, New Year's is when you start thinking about resolutions and, and, and what you're going to be kind of focusing on in the new year. And I, I want to just point out the fact that I think a lot of people are making resolutions that they want to be more involved in songcraft. I think that's probably a safe assumption. I, I read I an article somewhere about that. that that's uh, the buzz. Yeah. 60 to 70 percent of Americans have said that is their 2018 resolution. I think it's it's one of the few things that ties all Americans together yeah. at this stage is is a love for songcraft. And you know what's cool about being able to fulfill that resolution? It's super easy to do. So easy. You just go to patreon.com, <laughs> P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, backslash songcraft show, and you can find out how you can support us. And, and we've got people that have already kind of got on board making monthly contributions. One of them has earned a shout out on the show, and it will be our first shout out of 2018. Mark Johnson. Mark Johnson. That's Mark your Johnson. shout out. And Scott said it was some real drama and gravitas. I feel like I feel like that was a good one. I, I was I'm trying to see if I could get some work like doing some movie trailers. <laughs> Mark 
Johnson. In a world where Mark Johnson supports Sonic. <laughs> but actually, Mark Johnson, who is a, a native of Tennessee, or at least lives in Tennessee, which uh, is where we hail yeah. from, he is one of the people just like you who listens to Songcraft, loves Songcraft, and has uh, signed up at Patreon to help support what we're doing here. And, you know, we hate to harp on this stuff because it's like when the public radio station has their uh, pledge drive and the first thing you do is change the channel. You know, right. you don't want to listen to all that. But point being that, uh, like public radio, you can listen to us uh, absolutely free. But if you want to find out more about how you can support us in our mission and uh, preserving these important uh, conversations with songwriters, then um, we hope you'll uh, take advantage of that opportunity. And we've got one of those conversations today with William Bell. What a, what a cool a cool guy and, and a great conversation about some classic songs. Yeah, that whole like Stax era, the whole Memphis scene in the 60s, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. I love yeah. Southern Soul. I love those 6-8 ballads, you know, those kind of pleading, you know, yeah. old school R&B Southern Soul ballads. Um, it, it's probably some of my favorite music in the world. I've always been a William Bell fan, and so to be able to uh, to chat with him um, was uh, was pretty cool. Yeah, you, you get the feeling that, that these guys from this era could play the piano – they could write a song. They could also beat you up, and they could steal your woman. And still at the end, you'd probably think they were cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and speaking of writing songs, William Bell's most recent album, there's a song on there that's uh, co-written by Scott Bomar. Um, and it is not me. It is not It is not this Scott Bomar. There is another Scott Bomar. Crazy uh, enough. He lives in Memphis. He's uh, in the music business, just like I am. And uh we get confused for one another uh, pretty frequently, but fortunately, he's a super nice guy. So I'm glad yeah. the other Scott Bomar is not like some huge jerk. So uh, fortunately, when William Bell hears Scott Bomar wants to interview you, he doesn't run the other direction. He probably thought it was going to be his friend, and then here it uh -huh. is, some dude from LA. But, well, now uh, he's got two friends named Scott Bomar. What how many people can say that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let's hear from William Bell. Yep. William, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Thank you much. You know, Memphis played such an important role in your music career, and I understand you were actually born in that city in 1939. What was the first music that caught your ear as a young kid? Uh, I believe it was uh, gospel and then blues. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but we heard everything uh, during that time uh, on one radio station. At any given time, you could hear gospel, blues, jazz, and uh, uh, what they call back in those days rockabilly, mm. country and western combination. Who were some of your personal favorite artists when you were when you were young, what, kind of your impressionable years when you were first really starting to pay attention to the radio? Oh, God. Uh, I was always a, kind of a weird kid, I guess. I was <laughs> listening to gospel, uh, and then I was listening to like people like Sam Cooke and... Mahalia Jackson, because my mom was a gospel singer, and Mahalia and Sister Rosetta Tharp was two of her favorite people, so I heard yeah. that around the house all the time. And uh, I just got off into a lot of uh, pop and, and, and blues, and then, of course, B.B. Uh, and uh, Memphis Slim and all those guys, and Junior Parker and Bobby Bland, they were all popular then. Yeah, yeah. So now you talk about your mom being a, a big gospel music person. Um, obviously, at some point, you kind of got into 
you know, not just singing church songs, but but singing secular music as well. How did your your family kind of react to that? Were they supportive of that, or, or was it kind of like, a, ooh, that's a, you know, <laughs> different type of music? Well, uh, that's music from the devil, you know. So it's like, <laughs> I, I, it was not taken too well at first. Uh, but uh, I I did I was like one of the the gospel groups I listened to all the time for the harmonies and and the soul stirs and Sam Cooke was uh, my favorite group so uh, and when I started uh, when Sam changed over to secular music of course I I went with him and I started listening to all kinds of other stuff and uh, mom didn't take too well to it <laughs> right. Well, and how did you make your way into actually doing this professionally? Uh, I formed a vocal group called the Del Rios back mm. in the day, and we did a lot of the doo-wop groups and uh, all of that, and um, we were pretty good at it. So I was asked to do a some backup singing with the group behind Carla Thomas for the song G Wiz, and that's mm. how we came to the attention of stacks yeah okay. yeah now the earliest recording pre-stacks the earliest recording of a of a william bell song that we could find is called alone on a rainy night uh which was the del rios with uh, rufus thomas's bearcats on meteor records and i think that was um, yeah meteor, you know, that's back Barry. in the 50s yeah so you would have still been a a teenager at that time talk about writing that song and how that opportunity came about to to make that first record I was actually 14, and wow. uh, we had just gotten a weekend uh, uh, thing, uh, a job with a, a club in Memphis called the Flamingo Room. On the weekends, we'd run down there off Field Street on Hernando and and do a couple of shows for them. Um, and, of course, I came to the attention of... Uh, Chips Moleman and Jim Stewart uh, because uh, we were doing uh, some Christmas shows for one of Elvis's cronies, George Klein, and, yeah. and so we were we were on uh, his television show doing that local TV show he had hmm. in Memphis. Wow! And uh, everybody uh, just uh, liked the group, and of course, when they were asked, asked us to do it, I was happy and elated to just to. Uh, put something on a recording, but uh, our earlier thing had been done with the Beharis when we were just uh, coming into uh, junior high. Wow, school. wow. And, um, and the Beharry brothers, they were they were based out in, in L.A., right? Yeah, but you had Les, who had a, a small studio uh, in Memphis on Thomas Street, so ah. which... Uh, and uh, he was aware of the group, and uh, he had asked us to do a song, and I'd written this song alone on a rainy night, and uh, we won a, a talent show uh, for that. Wow. And uh, that's, um, Rufus Thomas had a uh, talent show that they did at the Palace Theater right. on Beale Street, and of course, that's how I met Rufus, and... Uh, he had his band uh, play the song on the talent show for us, and then they recorded it with him. Wow, wow, very cool. Well, you mentioned Jim Stewart and Chips Moment, obviously two very important guys in the in the early days of the legendary Stax label. And you know their their first 
charting single at Stax was Carla Thomas's 1960 recording of of G Wiz, top ten pop hit, top five R and B hit. So so you guys were actually the the backup singers on that then. Right. Wow. Wow. So that was kind of your first, I assume, kind of your first association officially with Stax. That was, and um, then um, a couple of the guys within the group were older than I, and uh, they, uh, after they had gotten out of high school, and so they were drafted, so that left me and Louis Williams Hmm. (laughs) alone, (laughs) and uh, uh, Chips kept asking me about doing a solo project uh, as an individual lead singer. Right. And, um, of course, I, at the time, I just uh, didn't have any songs, didn't have any uh, anything, you know, at that point, other than we'd recorded that one song that I had, two songs, actually, I had written, and we'd recorded that for media records. And um, so I went on tour with uh, Phineas Newborn, the Phineas Newborn band who played at the Flamingo right. during the summer. And I wrote this little song called You Don't Miss Your Water. And, wow. uh, of course, uh, when I came home, I ran into Chips again, and he asked me about doing a solo project. And uh, so I did uh, that uh, that song and a couple of other things that I had written. And, uh, yeah. As they say, the rest is history. <laughs> right, right. But now you've left me. You don't miss your water Till you will run dry but yeah, I'd love to focus a little bit more on that song. I mean, it, up until that particular time, you know, Stax had been known as, as Satellite Records, and then you, you Don't Miss Your Water actually became the first non-instrumental hit once once Stax was known as Stax. Um that's and it's become a soul standard since then. I, I'd love to know what kind of what inspired you to write it in the circumstances of, of creating that. Well, I was traveling on tour and we had a couple of days off, and I was at this hotel in New York, and it's raining like crazy. And of course, uh, I'm homesick and had a <laughs> girlfriend back there, so I'm homesick. And I wrote this song actually just kind of like therapy, <laughs> <laughs> right? As a, as a you know, for me, and uh, I didn't think that much about it. And um, of course, when I got home, Chips asked me, "You ready to record yet?" And I'm going, "I don't know." So then he finally convinced me to come over, and uh, I sang the song for him. And uh, of course, he just thought it was great. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Jim thought that much of it at first. Really. Uh, this is, <laughs> No, Miss Axton liked it. Uh, Jim didn't think that much of it. He thought actually it was a good song, but it was too gospel, with too much of a gospel feel. Yeah. And um, but uh, Miss Axton and Chips loved it, and they prevailed on Jim to release it. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, that's good. That's what he did. It's yeah. funny you you mentioned writing the song as therapy. Most people have to pay for therapy, but it seems like your therapy kind of paid you back over time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's true. I reversed it. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well done. Right. Well, I, I mean, you know, you, you Don't Miss Your Water has been covered by everyone from Otis Redding to, to Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, one of the 
one of the better known versions is the one by the birds that appeared on their sweetheart of the rodeo album and, and you know their take on it is obviously much more country than the original what what did you think of that when you first heard it well i liked it and actually you know mine has a, a tinge of, of country in it because as a vocal group uh, me and the Del Rio, we did backup singing behind uh, a lot of the uh, country singers on demos and stuff around uh, Memphis. And uh, yeah. so I was very familiar with, and uh, uh, I knew the Phillips family, Sam, and, and, uh, and all of this family. So uh, I was familiar with the country sound and everything, and Eddie Arnold and all those people. I, yeah. You know, they were, because he was a great ballad singer. I, yeah. I love that that sound. And so it has a a feeling of kind of a gospel country and yeah. Yeah. everything. I tell everybody all the time that uh, country and, and, and soul and blues are cousins. So it's like... <laughs> 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 yeah, I think, I think there's people kind of oversimplify. They sort of think of blues as black music and country as, as white music, but there's really a lot more intertangling of those roots than than some oh, yeah. people realize There's yeah a lot of a lot of similarities with uh subject matter and uh the you know the the just the way a song is written to tell that story uh it, it, there are a lot of similarities there yeah yeah for sure well, in 1962, Chuck Jackson fell just shy of the R&B Top 40 with a song called Any Other Way, but it wasn't until 1966 that you were back in the Top 30 once again as either artist or songwriter, and I understand that your career, just when it was taken off, kind of got a little sidetracked. Uh, what happened? Um, well, I dropped out. I was in. I uh, went to uh, school for one semester, college, and after high school, and I dropped out. I had a hit record with You Don't Miss Your Water, so I dropped out to uh, go on tour. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, my thinking was, let me go make some money. Like most college kids, hey, I, I've got a, right. an opportunity to make some money. Let me go make the money and I'll, I'll start next semester in the fall. You know? right. so it's like, <laughs> and, of course, this was during the draft time. Of course, Elvis had gotten drafted and and of course, I got drafted mm -hmm. when I dropped out of school, and yeah. uh, so I spent two years in the military. And I imagine everybody looked up and said, "Oh, Elvis got drafted. I I'm probably not going to get out of this." <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, I I kind of thought at first because I was on tour, I was at the Apollo Theater, and my mom called me, finally caught up with me because I was on uh, some of these uh, what they call the tours with one nighters. Yeah. So we played Apollo, Apollo for a weekend, and uh, she finally was able to catch up with me. And she called and said, uh, I've got this letter here, and, and it's from uh, uh, the water, uh, Army or something, State Department. And I mm -hmm. said, well, did you open it? And she said, no. I said, open it. She opened it and read it. And of course, it was greetings. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I could come home maybe and get a deferment for about six months so I could complete all of this touring that I had to make money. And, of course, uh, when she caught up with me, I was all already two weeks late in, in the reporting for, for oh, the no. draft board. <laughs> so when I got home to Memphis, I, I flew in after that weekend. For, I had a couple of days off and I flew in and took my car and I had bought just bought a new car and everything. I flew in. 
and went to the draft board and went in and to talk about uh, getting a deferment. He said, uh, "Oh, you, you come, come right back here. You're too weeks late already. So uh. come, come back in the back." And I went back in this room where he had about six or seven other guys, and the sergeant said, "Raise your right hand." And I, I don't, I didn't know what was going on, so I raised my right hand, took the oath. <laughs> wow, <laughs> and, and, and then said, "I want to talk to somebody now about getting, you know, a, a, a six-month deferment because I got all these recording dates, and of course, I can't tell you on, in this interview what he told me, but I was in the army then." <laughs> you, you went in for a deferment and got a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, the next morning, I was they put us on took us took us out to the veterans hospital. We got our shots the next morning. We were at Fort Polk, Louisiana. So. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Well, after that stint in the Army, uh, you did have a chance to return and, uh, and reinsert yourself into the music business. And in 1967, you had your first top 20 single with Everybody Loves a Winner, which you wrote with Booker T. Jones. But my fame, oh, it died. And now my friends begin to hide. That song was a result of me coming home, and when I got out of the military, uh, Rufus Thomas was a big uh, star, and and all these other acts were coming along, and then Carla had a big record. So uh, I um, was just searching at the time to get a, a, a foothold back on the totem pole here, because mm-hmm. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole then. Hmm. And um, I noticed uh, there was a difference in, you know, the songs that were brought to me by other writers. Uh, they gave me the uh, dregs of the song. You know, the good <laughs> songs went to uh, Rufus and, and some of the other artists that they had signed in. And, yeah. um, so then they said, oh, here's a song. We'll give that to William. <laughs> but they were songs that, that were not for me. And... Um, so that song came to mind, and I asked Jim Stewart if I could just uh, glue my ears to the radio for a minute and find out what was happening uh, stateside with uh, popular music and blues and soul and stuff, and so he did. And uh, that was one the first song that I wrote after getting out of the military, Everybody mm-hmm. Loves a Winner. And yeah. that was my experience from coming back into Stax. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, wow. You know, when I think of Stax songwriters, you know, I, I think of you, Booker T, Steve Cropper, Isaac Hayes and David Porter, Eddie Floyd. I mean, there's so many great writers hanging around in those days. But, it, you know, it seems like you and Booker T really kind of connected and, and became a team. Talk about the songwriting culture at Stax and how those alliances and, and partnerships kind of formed over time. Actually, we were like a lot of neighborhood kids. Uh, we all knew each other. Like Memphis, is, the musical community is very close-knit. Yeah. And uh, so Booker and I knew each other. We went to our families. Now, we went to the same church. Uh, Booker played organ in church. Uh, some. We went to the same high school. So we knew each other uh, socially. Yeah. And uh, a 
of course, Isaac and I grew up together with David. David lived. Uh, he and Maurice White were like three or four doors down from me. And, and uh, so uh, we all grew up in the same neighborhood. So the, the thing was, it's just uh, pairing off the two of me and Booker uh, was a good thing because we already knew each other. We found out that uh, writing styles were the similar, you know, mm. because he was very, uh, uh, he was like melodically structured, yeah. and I was lyrically structured, but I loved the melody a lot, too, because being, I love ballads and stuff like that, Yeah, and I could do up-tempo, but melodies was my forte, and so they paired me and Booker off, and of course, uh, we had lots of success with that, uh, not only writing for me, and but for writing for some of the other acts, too, yeah. so uh, yeah. it was good. It was a good union. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and, and you know, that you bring up a, an important point about writing for other acts, because 1967, that was a, a pretty pivotal year for you, you know, in addition to, to scoring with Everybody Loves a Winner, you you put out your first album, the classic uh, The Soul of the Bell, but you also um, had a song recorded by another artist that became an instant blues standard, and of course I'm, I'm talking about Albert King and, and Born Under a Bad Sign. Tell us how that song came about. I was one of um, these artists that if I were not on tour, I was always in the studio because I wanted to learn all the aspects of recording behind the scenes, how to mic drums, how to do this. I was into the production end of it a lot. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And uh, I was in the studio when Albert came in to do his session, and after the session was over, he didn't have enough songs to, to complete his project. Yeah. And Jim Jim Stewart asked me if I had uh, anything that Albert could do, a song or something. And I had this one song I had started actually for myself, but... Uh, I thought about it, and I said, well, that might be a good song for Albert. So I, I sang, uh, I had a verse, a chorus, a, and uh, the bass line. That was all that mm. I had. Right. <laughs> and uh, and um, so I sang it down, and Booker sat at the piano, and I, I showed him the bass line, and he started, of course, he's more of a musician than I am, so he's putting the chords to it, and and improved on the bass line. And, and uh, I did that, and, of, of course, Albert loved the, the idea. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, And so Jim asked, well, can you complete it so we can record it on Albert? So hmm. we said, well, give us overnight, and we'll, we'll do it. So we went to right. uh, Booker's house and uh, sat up in the den all night and finished the song, came back the next day, and... Uh, got with the um, uh, rhythm section and completed it and uh, put Albert's uh, vocals on. Yeah. And he, he added his guitar to it, and it was just like magic. It just came to life. Wow, that's amazing. Now, 
1968, a group called Ollie and the Nightingales had a top 20 R&B hit with I Got a Sure Thing, another one that, that you and, and Booker T wrote with Ollie. So, you know, looking at that and, and, and looking at Albert King, were you guys writing a, a lot for other acts in that era beyond, you know, the material that you were wanting to record for yourself? Well, not necessarily. Uh, it was just that I, Jim uh, could see that I was a good writer, and, and the other artists were asking me all the time about writing something for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, so Ollie um, and I knew each other well because he, he came from a gospel background. And um, so, of course, they needed some material, and the same situation, they asked if I had something to... Booker and I, I had this song that we especially designed for Ollie and and and, and the group. So and I, I got a sure thing with the song. And, uh, <laughs> right, right. Um, and I think we did showered with love and a couple other things that we we did uh, three or four songs with Ollie. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, one of your more poignant songs because it's so personal is a tribute to a king. Uh, it's another top 20 hit you wrote with Booker T as a tribute to your friend, the legendary Otis Redding. Listen, people, listen. I'm gonna sing you a song about a man who lived good but didn't live too long. He was born in Macon, Georgia, a poor boy without a dime. He found his way to Memphis, singing these arms of mine. Um, talk about writing that song and the process it went through on its way to becoming a hit. Otis and I, uh, I happened to be, I was in the military but home on furlough, and Otis came in, actually he was driving Johnny Jenkins in, hmm. and I happened to be at Johnny's uh, uh you know, uh, recording session. Yeah. And at the end of Johnny's session, of, of course, it seemed like guys would come in and they were ill-prepared, <laughs> and he didn't have enough things to do. And, of course, uh, Jim asked uh, if somebody had some more songs that <laughs> Johnny Jenkins could do. So Otis said, spoke up and said, I've got this one little song. And uh, so Jim said, well, can you sing it for us and of course he went up uh, they worked it up and he went up on the mic because uh, they were going to just put it down as a demo so Johnny could learn it right and o Otis sang uh, these arms of mine and of course <laughs> wow. after we were listening back on the playback all of the clerical workers and everybody was sticking their heads in the studio <laughs> to right. figure out who that was yeah and yeah. Um, of course Instead of getting another song for Johnny Jenkins, they had, had another artist. <laughs> wow. Right, right. So, but, but Otis and I became just really good friends. Uh, we toured together and rode in the same car and just and, and hung out together after tours and stuff at, at both Macon and in, in uh, Atlanta sometimes. I'd come to Atlanta and we'd hang out and just party. Yeah. And um, I, after his death, it was just, such a devastating thing and shocking and I wanted to again ther therapy for me mm, yeah. I wanted to do something for his family just to get to give them something and so I 
I wanted to write this song and write this little uh, thing. And, and uh, so Booker and I got together and, and started writing it. And uh, when we finished it, we put a demo down and I sent it to uh, Zelma, his wife. Right. And she said, you have got to release this. Well, I didn't want to release it hmm. because I didn't want people to think that I was trying to capitalize on, on, on my friend's death. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, Everybody was coming with "We Love You, Otis," "We Miss You, Otis," and all these kind of songs and yeah. everything. And I just wrote it uh, for the family, just to give to them. Uh-huh. Um, but she loved it and wanted it to release it. And of course, Jim and Estelle wanted to release it. And I was fighting against it, and I fought a losing battle. But I, I did agree to do it as a B-side. If they were going to release it, release it only as a B-side on. Uh, Another song that I was coming out as was 45 with. Yeah, yeah. And um, so that's what they did. But, of course, all of the disc jockeys went directly to the Tribute to a King song. And um, (laughs) it was always kind of strange uh, for me to to do it because I always felt like, you know, it feels like I'm I'm capitalizing on on his untimely death, but uh, not the case. Yeah, 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 more of a tribute to your friend. Yeah, yeah. You were uh, a constant on the R&B Top 20 in 1968, including a a duet with Judy Clay called Private Number, another song credited to you and Booker, and that also became a Top 10 hit in the U.K. understand that that song was actually written pretty quickly and wasn't even necessarily intended to to be a duet how did all that come about uh, uh same scenario <laughs> william bell's in the studio while other artists are recording and, <laughs> right. um, and um she didn't have enough tunes so jim again asked me you got anything that judy could do so i had this one song and um I said, yeah, so he said, well, would you work it up with the the rhythm section, which is Al, Doug, Steve, and Booker. So we worked it up, and I sang the whole song, and Judy had to go back to New York uh, for some business things or something, and uh, so she asked if we could send the tape up. They didn't have files and all that stuff back then, so we had to send the 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 tape up to New York for sure. her to record it. And um I had done the whole song, uh all all verses and the choruses and everything. So I think it was uh, they said Jerry Wexler had the bright idea of uh, making a duet out of it because uh Jim and people at Stacked wanted to try to compete with Motown with the duet project. Yeah, yeah. And Marvin and Tammy were big back then. And so uh, they thought that this would be a good uh, song to compete with for Marvin and Tammy from a Stax perspective. Right, right. So they took uh, uh, my first verse, put uh, Judy on the first chorus, and took my... uh, second verse and let Judy sing the second verse and then on the chorus 
and ad lib out, and it actually was as if we were in the studio together, but we never sang <laughs> it in the studio. <laughs> well, in the studio together. That's so. wild. Yeah. Well, yet another success for you in 1968 was a song that I think is a great title, I Forgot to Be Your Lover. Um, and that hit the R&B Top 10 and fell just shy of the Pop Top 20. Now I realize that you need love too And I'll spend my life making up to you Oh, I forgot to be your lover Even with the legendary, you know, the songs that were going to become, you know, standards that you'd written up to that point, that was your biggest commercial hit uh, up to that time. What inspired that song? Uh, touring. <laughs> 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 um, again, um, I had uh, been on tour, and uh, at that time, we did like six months, nine months of touring instead of one-nighters and stuff all over the country. Um, and I had been on tour most of the whole year mm-hmm. and uh, just missing home, missing the, the girlfriend and and everything. And so wrote uh, this song um, to try and uh, apologize as an mm-hmm. apology. Yeah, yeah. And uh, got home and... Uh, got with Booker, and uh, it was kind of a strange song because the chord progressions were a little bit different from most songs. We put a lot of uh, almost classical movements in it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and um, so, but it was different, and it was all about love and missing, you know, and um, it resonated with uh, the audience, and it became a big record for us. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you, we talk to a lot of writers, and and they, you know, find inspiration in different places. And some, you know, just listen to hits, and some read the papers. But it seems like your songs come from a very personal place. Like um, many of these songs seem to come from where you're at at the moment and trying to kind of express something inside. Is is that an important component for you when it comes to being inspired to write? Absolutely, I, I have to believe in what I do. Uh, but sometimes I'll just take a hypothetical situation and write about it, but I try to write honestly about it yeah. and place myself in the situation and, and write honestly on how I would react in that situation. Or, And I'm a people watcher. I do that constantly, uh, and I watch people going through different uh, situations and everything, and uh, that's coming from uh, uh, growing up working in clubs and stuff and watching people when they come in, uh, their reaction when they first come into the club Mm. uh, before midnight and after three or four drinks, how they act after midnight. (laughs) 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 So um, I, um, you know, I I write about uh, just uh, what I I experience and then what I, uh, uh, from observation, and like I said, sometimes just hypothetically I write about something, but I try to write honestly about everything. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, your third studio album, titled Wow, was released in 1971, and I believe the rhythm tracks were cut in Muscle Shoals. Why were they recorded down there as opposed to Stax, and how would you describe the difference in the Muscle Shoals sound versus the Memphis sound? Uh, Muscle Shoals had a great sound, which was similar 
two stacks because the guys uh, at Muscle Shows, Jimmy and all the guys away, influenced by what we were doing at Stacks. Um, and then they were cutting some of the same artists, Wilson Pickett, Aretha, and all those people that uh, that uh, also had recorded in Memphis and stuff. So, yeah. Um, I I think I, I really loved the, the sound at Muscle Shows. It was a little bit different. There was more of a little country influence mm. in in that particular sound. Uh, but they had the emotional range for the music and the lyrical content and everything. So, And we went down to Muscle Shows simply because uh, when Stax changed the distributorships and they went... Uh, to uh, CBS, uh, when they left Atlantic, uh, there was a clause in the contract where uh, Atlantic retained all of the masters, and I think that yeah. was a surprise to Jim. Huh. <laughs> right. And uh, so we had to scramble to uh, uh, build a catalog. And uh, so we were recording uh, in a lot of different places uh, in Detroit with Don Davis up there and in muscle shows and and uh, and then because the, uh, Stack Studio was just constantly we had about a hundred artists band, wow. on the roster then and and we were just uh, just overburdened with with uh, sessions and and didn't have enough uh, uh, musicians like rhythm sections and stuff. We yeah. used some of the barcades we used Booker and, and the MGs, but we had to go someplace else to just get the manpower and, and, the, and the songs and, and get a, a, a good studio quality. So most of the shows became our choice. And so I went down to uh, most of the shows for that. Well, the, the early to mid-1970s saw more charting singles for you at Stax, including Lovin' on Borrowed Time, I've Got to Go On Without You, and Getting What You Want. But after 13 years, 32 singles, six albums with Stax, you found your biggest success actually in the post-Stax era when you signed with Mercury Records and scored a number one R&B hit and top ten pop hit with Trying to Love 2, uh, a song that you wrote with, with Paul Mitchell. I've got a woman at home sweet as can be a woman on the outside crazy about me i'm caught in the middle of a three-way love affair caught up in this triangle can't go Um, talk about how that Stax era kind of came to an end and, and then how you managed to still triumph with that big hit coming coming out of that era. Well, when when uh, Stax got into uh, financial troubles and everything, we could see the handwriting on the wall. But yeah. uh, Isaac and I and David and a couple of other people, we hung in there uh, almost till the end. Uh, and of course, then we had to think about uh, making a living in our families and all of that stuff. So, uh, amicably, we I left and talked to Jim and Al, and I said, you know, I've, I've just got to move on. You know, so yeah. they understood, and uh, I left and uh, came to Atlanta and 
actually, I just had a bad taste in my mouth for the music <laughs> business at that time. Sure. Wanted to do something different, a change of venue, change of scenery. Uh, my manager and I started a, another record label, and uh, we uh, were distributed by Charles Sash. Right. <laughs> and he was one of the vice presidents at Mercury, and he kept asking me for months about, let us do a project on you. And, of course, I just didn't want to see myself as an artist trying to do <laughs> any right. kind of musical stuff. I was happy in the studio doing production and writing. Yeah, yeah. So he finally prevailed, and uh, I agreed to do four sides. I wanted to cut someplace where it was kind of familiar but still have a different feel from the stuff that I had done in Memphis. So mm. I called up Alan Toussaint, who was... Uh, a good friend of mine, we were in the military together oh, at wow. Fort Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> Interesting. So um, I called him up, and so he and Marshall uh, said, oh, man, you got to come on down anytime you want to. Right. And uh, they just let us have the studio with the, the group and the engineers. Hey, and we cut four sides, and uh, I did scratch vocals on them and brought it back to uh, Atlanta and... Uh, then I uh, rented a studio here to do uh, my master vocals and all that stuff, and the what we call the sweetening on it, put strings and horns and mix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, so we, we did all of that stuff there, but I wound up, I could never, I was never quite satisfied with uh, the emotional part of trying to love too and and things that I had captured in New Orleans when I did the the uh the uh, you know just the scratch vocal. Yeah, yeah. So we wound up using the original vocal that right. I used in New Orleans <laughs> on it. So it felt so good. It was just, so we used that and then put everything else on it and mixed it and uh Wow. He finally Charles called me and said, Guess what? You just knocked one out of the park, and I had a million-seller record. Wow. wow. <laughs> so, That's amazing. So, which was which was total surprise. My first million-seller. I had some good records at Stacks, but this was the first million-seller. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and you continued to put singles on the charts into the 1980s, and at that point, we start seeing other people bringing back some of your, your earlier songs. Uh, Billy Idol had a, a top 10 pop hit with his version of I Forgot to Be Your Lover, which I think he just called To Be a Lover. And then even, you know, years after that, we start seeing your songs... Uh, getting sampled. Um, Jaheem had uh, put that woman first, which also sampled that right. that same song, and that was a you know a big hit as well. Has it surprised you? You know, you, I don't see a lot of connection points between Jaheem and, and Billy Idol to to be pulling from the same song. <laughs> I, you know, has it, has it surprised you to see the way that your songs have been kind of used and reinterpreted? Well, I, I, I like I said, I write honestly and. I, I try to, to uh, record it in such a way that 
the meaning is, is and the clarity of it is there. Yeah. Uh, so that they don't have to wonder about what did he mean by that line. Uh, it's, <laughs> right. it's clear. It's clear cut. Yeah. And uh, artists identify with it. They feel what I'm doing, and of course, uh, I have found out in traveling and working with all kinds of different artists and stuff in concerts and stuff that uh, you know. People are people the world over. We have the same wishes, desires, frustrations, and everything. Yeah. And if you put something out there honestly, and the clarity is there where they can understand it, uh, they they can, uh, you know, they can identify with it. Mm. Yeah. And sure. uh, that's what happened because when I first uh, Billy's. Uh, uh, record label called me and said, we just cut a smash on, I forgot to be love on Billy Idol. Well, I knew of his past works. Yeah. And I'm thinking in my mind, I forgot to be in love with Billy Idol. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How did he hear this sensitive love ballad? Yeah. Right, right. And, and when I got it, quite honestly, it took me uh, maybe about a week now, listening to it every day, I mean, because as a producer and a writer, I try to keep an open mind. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, he had it up to, to where he could relate and his audience could relate to it. Yeah. And uh, so I kept listening to it, but the more I listened to it, the more I got into it. Huh. Yeah. And yeah. finally, it just it just grew on me, and I'm saying, okay, now I understand where he's coming from with this. <laughs> right. But... Um, but when I first heard the first couple of times, I'm going, "What? How did he hear this?" <laughs> and, and the emotional thing, but but it comes across in the, in the rock category, and, and right, and it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah for and sure. And it's that way with other artists uh, when they when they do stuff, the rappers and everything, Ludacris or Kanye, that they cut stuff of mine, and I'm I'm going, "Okay, he's a rap artist, but but they've got the same." problems in life yeah, it, yeah they express it a different way so sure uh yeah. it's been it's been good to to know that uh other artists can identify with stuff that i've written or created and everything so it's been great mm. yeah cool well after more solo albums in the 80s and 90s uh 2016 kind of represented a full circle moment for you when you returned to the reborn stacks label that Concord Records reactivated and put out This Is Where I Live, an album of mostly original songs that included your own version of Born Under a Bad Sign, won you a Grammy for Best Americana Album. Talk about that project and what it felt like to get that kind of recognition from the music industry after having been a professional songwriter and singer for 60 years. Well, um, you know, we, uh, I did a project uh, called Take Me to the River, which is a uh, a movie about uh, Memphis music and Memphis musicians and yeah. everything and, and passing the torch on to uh, younger generations. Right. And uh, Martin Shore and I talked about it a lot uh, when we were doing this, and we wanted to um, just mix up the genres because, mm. I, as you we said earlier, I'm... I'm getting sampled and recorded by rap artists and rock artists, country artists. So I said, well, music is music. So it, by that being said, we want to reach everybody uh, yeah. when we put something out there. And uh, so 
in the movie we did that and we paired me and Snoop together with I Forgot to Be Your Lover again. Yeah, yeah. And and Snoop wrote a, a rap to it and we performed it in the movie and it just clicked. Uh, and uh, Concord picked stacks, uh, picked up the sound soundtrack to the movie. Right. And uh, that just kind of opened doors and they asked if I would do a a solo project for him, and of course, me having my own label and everything, it was just kind of kind of weird. But I took a hiatus from uh, recording for my label, which is Wilby Records, to do it for Stax, and it felt good. It really felt like coming home. Yeah. Uh, after a long journey, and uh, to have that type of success and to get a Grammy and me being, and it was kind of appropriate because I I was the first uh, artist on the original, <laughs> right, male right. artist on the original Stax label. Yeah, yeah. So it was just kind of appropriate for that to happen, yeah. and it kind of kicked Stax the label off again for the, the next uh, generations, and uh, so it was a win-win situation for both Stax and me, and it just. To know that uh, to win a Grammy from your peers in the industry after 60 years and still be viable and productive in a in, in something that you love doing and fortunate enough to be able to do, uh, it was just wonderful. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing very, and very well deserved. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a thrill for us. This is really fun. Uh, thank you, man. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters.